When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. Envy is a powerful force in football. That's why some would love to see both teams lose when PSG play Manchester City in Paris on Tuesday. They're clubs which have it all. State backing, the pick of the planet's best players. But with that sort of investment comes expectation. We'll start by looking at City. A terrific win at Chelsea a big date next weekend at Liverpool. So Meigs, is this the week that shapes their season? Potentially sets the tone for the season. In terms of shaping it, I suppose, just for the fact that you would expect them to get through the Champions League group anyway, maybe that just kind of... Um, it's, it's not quite as crucial. But in terms... I mean, I was at, I was at Stamford Bridge on Saturday and I felt usually significant for all sorts of reasons. I mean, first of all, I'd say it was probably the performance of the season so far from any team, not just because of the convincing manner of it, but also the psychology of it, the momentum of it, given how it had been built up. It, it looked like Chelsea, or at least they were talked of, as potentially one of these sides, like City 2017-18, like Chelsea 04-05, like United 93-94, that just starts well and keeps going. And City, I suppose, disabused them of that while showing them what you know winning titles is all about, despite what happened last May. And, of course, sets them up brilliantly for Sunday. But I do wonder, is, that, is this going to be a little bit of one of the themes of the season, where we keep almost having these, these, these checkbacks? Because, obviously, only a week ago, we were all talking about how, once again, these issues that City haven't signed a striker. And so... I, I think it could be quite an erratic title race in that regard. So, yeah, if you tell me to sum up, in terms of shaping the week or shaping the season, there's probably still too much to play, but more they are basically kind of showing their level. Yeah, when you look at it, Glenn, only one goal conceded in the Premier League, which I suppose explains the absence of John Stones. You've got Cancelo, an absolute example of, of the patience required probably playing for Pep, you know, Let's not forget he was inexplicably omitted from the Champions League final. How do you see City shaping up? And what struck me about the, their performance at Stamford Bridge was the intensity of their pressing. 
that's draining physically and mentally. Can it be sustained? Well, Liverpool managed to sustain it a couple of years ago when they won the title and they pressed pretty hard most of the season until the, the title was effectively won. And also City do have the benefit of this, this vast array of talent that was sitting on the bench yeah, at the weekend. I mean, we look at the players, yeah, you mentioned uh, Stones, but there's also uh, Aki, Sterling, Fern Torres, Fernandino, Mahrez, Gundogan didn't even get on the bench. So you can imagine that I would say of the two matches, the Liverpool game is the more important one. You know, as Miguel said, I think they will qualify from the Champions League group regardless of the result on Tuesday. When you look at the players, you look at the, I mean, Pierce have already dropped points. RB Leipzig could cause problems, but City have already beaten them. So if there's a game to lose in the Champions League this season, you know, a free hit almost, this is probably the one. You could freshen up players, you know, and as long as he keeps a good tactical shape about it, you, know, you, could, you could certainly see them getting a point there. Yeah, which would keep them ticking over nicely. And then, you know, they'd be fresh. a lot of players would be fresh for Liverpool. We used all three substitutes the weekend. I imagine do so game on Tuesday. So that intensity of pressing, keep it all season, yes, tough. Particularly, don't forget, a lot of these players have come off busy summers. But, yeah, they don't need to do that all season. They do it against Chelsea, but they don't need to press, you know, quite a lot of teams in the Premier League quite that hard and quite that with pressure because they will have the ball most of the time. So they can therefore rest and make other teams do the work. So I would have thought it is sustainable for a period of time, certainly. Yeah. Let's, you know, what Tuesday's tie will do, Migs, is focus on the phenomenon of the, the rise of state-funded football. PSG and Manchester City embody that. When you're subject to that sort of investment, surely you can only justify it by winning the Champions League, can't you? Oh yeah, that's it. I know. I mean, of course, there's only one club every season that can win it. But when you're pushing the boundaries of expenditure and economics and football, you're also pushing the boundaries of expectations, and that's completely. But at the same time, I, I think from the sporting perspective, one of the interesting things about this tie is that they're basically the two very different models on how you run a team or run a club with that kind of ownership and how you use that money. Because, I mean, City are, at least in terms of the structure of the club and how they're run from a purely football operation, they're almost a model. In fact, there's all sorts of bigger themes here because it was, what's it? And it's very, I think it's fascinating in the context of the, the ongoing crisis of Barcelona. What, I mean, what actually happened, was, I suppose, with Barcelona there's a brilliant book by Josh Robinson of the Wall Street Journal, The, the Club, in which you obviously get, you get a lot of access to, to city figures early on. And when they first bought the club in 2008, one of the specific tactics was not just to buy in loads of great players and it drastically improve the level of the, of the team. One of the specific tactics that, that City had at that point was to scuttle the teams around them. So, so in the summer of 2019, Try to buy all of Arsenal's best players, in culminating the famous Adebayor moments. Try to buy all of Villa's best players, getting Milner, Lescott. And once they got to a certain level around 2010-11, that's exactly what they did with Barcelona as well. Ultimately, because what's really happened here is the city hierarchy saw Barcelona as the apple or, or f- football or whatever kind of leading company you want to describe, took all their brains trust, transposed it over to Manchester and have built kind of the, the model club, and, and in this case, built a club around an ideology and one specifically suited to Pep Guardiola. And I, I, I think that's been a real cause in, in Barcelona's demise. Whereas Paris Saint-Germain, I mean, it is just really 
it's it's a cliche of okay, it's 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 not just some rich owner treating it as a plaything in the same way. It's very much a state project. But sometimes it feels like just a rich owner throwing throwing money at it because there doesn't seem to be any sort of reasoning to what they're doing. And, and the ultimate example of this is this mismatch between the coach, Mauricio Pochettino, who is brilliant when he can employ his own ideology in a team, and a squad that just isn't suited to that ideology at all, culminating in some of the issues we've already seen. Yeah. yeah, I'd also, to go attack the question that you posed, Mike, it depends what is success in terms of what the expenditure is. I mean, you could oh, yeah, argue, yeah. I mean, obviously, w- w- winning the Champions League is the icing on the cake, clearly, but you could argue both countries have already achieved what they want to achieve. I mean, I know they they are, you know, they, they have countries, but football gets you into places that other things doesn't necessarily get you into. It gets you into the top table at one or two other places. And, and but I mean, PSG are now heavily involved in running UEFA already, and, yeah, plus the TV stuff. And then, yeah, again, City, I mean, it changes. They've already change the perception of lots of people towards the countries. You know, you've got this army of fans that you're well aware of, Mick, who will back the, the country and the team, regardless of criticism. So in that respect, you could argue the two projects have already been successful, regardless of whether they win. Until they win, that's always a stick to beat them with for critics. But I think that maybe matters more to fans than it does actually to the owners. But when you look at the City Group, you know, they're expanding and it's it's not a football strategy, it's a geopolitical strategy. They're expanding into China and into India. So, you know, what we're talking about here is football as a means to an end. Yeah, and I, I, I just on that as well, when they played in the semi-final last season, I did a piece specifically on this and in the context of the Gulf blockade, which, of course, I mean, the leading parties that were Abu Dhabi, who own City, or ultimately own City, and Qatar. And I was just talking to a lot of people who work in that area, and particularly human rights, and then we were discussing the issue of would it be would it specifically matter to these kind of hierarchies so much to actually win it ahead of their great Gulf blockade rivals? And it kind of, the argument for it, yeah, to a certain degree, but only on a superficial level. Because ultimately, as Glenn says there, they've, it, it, it's already been done, if you know what I mean. They're, they're there. One of them is going to be in the Champions League final. They're at the top level of European football. City pretty much control the transfer market to a degree. They're, they're, they're such a... Because the amount of money they have, it conditions everything else. And Paris Saint-Germain are the exact same. And they're both kind of these now, you know, huge forces kind of balancing either side of, of, of the football world. So you've got City on one side who are almost nihilant unto, the, unto themselves, despite kind of the machinations of the Super League and all that. Then the other side, Paris Saint-Germain, who, I mean, for all, I have to say, the praise and all that they got about the Super League... Had that, had that actually happened a few years down the line, they would have been in it. So I, I, they, I, I think they shouldn't be too, uh, afforded too much credit there. But ultimately, one consequence of that is now, as Glenn says, Nasser Al-Khalafi is one of the most influential people in European football. And from speaking to people around those circles in the last few months, he's widely expected to eventually go for the presidency of either FIFA or UEFA. I mean, and it is... <laughs> this is this is a football podcast, and that's, but from from looking at it from that level, and it's something we should never lose sight of. Given given how much Saudi money is also willing to back some of FIFA's bigger plans, particularly the ultimate one, which is the Club World Cup, not the biennial World Cup. What we have seen in the last year, or sorry, it, it hasn't quite been its own play in sight because it's kind of been <laughs> almost under the surface. What we have seen in the last few years is the takeover of the top levels of European football and the global game by the main parties in the Gulf blockade. 
And it, it, we, we, I mean, for for all the kind of football fascination of a game like this, that I, I do think these more complicated and difficult questions should always be at the forefront. Yeah, but I suppose, you know, let's concentrate on the football. I know that seems to be a bit of a luxury. You know, the narrative will be all about Messi, who will play and be reunited with uh, Pep Guardiola. Are we looking at the myth of allegiance here, Glenn? Let's be honest, Messi has no emotional attachment to PSG at all because Barcelona shaped and made him. Yes, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I, mean, I guess it depends on the individual. I mean, yeah, working in our industry, you come, you you start in our industry as football fans, obviously, because we like football. As you get into the industry, your allegiance to your personal club does decline because you sometimes you deal with that club and find actually the people that aren't that helpful. Sometimes you find that the people who you regard as your enemies actually are, are really helpful, and you get ex- exposed to the good and bad you know, much more closely. And inevitably, you're looking at lots of different teams as well. So your your feeling for that club has to be diluted in those circumstances. And um, you know, we're professionals. I mean. Most professionals would come in the game supporting a club or, or other. I mean, in Messi's case, I mean, he would have probably grown up, grown up supporting new as old boys, but clearly he was at Barcelona from a very young age. But it's quite rare now, once you can become a professional and it becomes an industry, and it is very much an industry, you, you, there is an allegiance, and there's all the badge kiss and stuff like that. And you do see it at some clubs more than others uh, that there is a genuine feeling for a club. And I think it's very important. I mean, look at Arsenal with the impact of people like Saka and Smith Rowe, players who come through the system. Are, are more embedded in a club and, and it shows up particularly in, in derby matches and stuff like that but but you are still you know at some point most footballers know they are a product that will be traded you know when they when their life to span at the club is you know, reached a certain time you know it doesn't matter how good you are at a certain point it'd be expedient expedient to, to trade you as a product and that is bound to color your view of the, the whole you know, football industry. So I guess, yeah, Messi's playing for PSG because that was the option that was available to him, that people prepared to pay him, and he will want to achieve something on his own merits in terms of he wants to win another Champions League trophy. But there's no great connection with with the club, I, I imagine, for him, certainly at this early stage. But yeah, is, is that necessarily a problem? Is he going to make him play any worse or better? Not necessarily. I mean, he's driven by his own desire for high performance. He's driven by his own desire to win the competition. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a better or worse player. In fact, sometimes you can take the emotion out of it. He might play, play better in some circumstances. We, we, all can, we can all remember instances of derby matches where players become caught up in the emotion of the event and actually not played as well as they could have done. Yeah. Where does this leave Pochettino? You mentioned him, Migs. What are the limitations of his authority, do you feel? You know, he's not also got to deal with with Messi, but also you know, Mbappe is quite an interesting in, in, in quite an interesting point in his career now. But the state of mind seems a bit cloudy. He was criticised by the the Mets manager Frederick Antonetti this week for his perceived arrogance. Pochettino needs to be his own man, but can you do that in such a an ego driven environment? No, I think it's very difficult. And I think I think there's a really interesting undercurrent here in terms of, I suppose it comes down to kind of principles of management. I mean, Pochettino, when he was kind of maybe trying to put himself in the position for other jobs in the past, he's made it very clear he has a relationship with, with Alex Ferguson, who I suppose he'd see as some way of a, of a mentor figure, or certainly has taken advice off. If you talk to any young managers that have spoken to Ferguson, his message is always, and the answer is, it's in all of Ferguson's books. It's one of his, it's almost kind of the mantra of his career. You want total control. As soon as you don't have total control, you better get out of there or ensure you have it. 
And Pochettino, I mean, a little bit like Messi in that this is almost, it's a marriage of convenience with all sorts of inconveniences involved. He's, he's gone into a situation where he can never have total control. And I think that particularly scuttles Pochettino because his style of football or the ideology, the ideology that's worked best for him absolutely demands that 100% commitment. And it's something he's never going to get at Paris Saint-Germain. It's why this is going to be a really fascinating season. And in terms of the, the question you asked earlier about whether this could be a week that shapes Manchester City's season, I think it's far more relevant to Paris Saint-Germain because they lose this game, especially with, with, with Leipzig, who are at, at the very least capable of surprising the group. But there are doubts about Jesse Marsh there, apparently, which which could create difficulty for them. But, but, like, but certainly, it's not a foregone conclusion that Paris Saint-Germain go through. And if you don't get through the group stage, given this, as we've said, this, this is the one they want most, it's suddenly, they're in tricky. So it's why, they, but it's, this game is, it's, it's fascinating in that regard. And it's, there is pressure on for everyone involved at Paris Saint-Germain. And you're completely right, because of course, he's not just dealing with Messi, which, I mean, as Guardiola knows, can bring pressures of his, no, of his own for all his historic brilliance. There's like, this huge, um, <laughs> you know, huge gravitational spheres of influence all over the Paris Saint-Germain dressing room. And even that game of the weekend, the footage came up as well of Paris or sorry, of Mbappe complaining about Neymar not passing to him. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge challenge. I think that is the problem. I mean, you've got having the three of them and some other big characters in that dressing room. I mean, you mentioned Ferguson, the complete control. I mean, he was prepared to bend occasion. I mean, there's a story about when they've got some club event on and all the players have been told to turn up in their suits and they all turn up in their suits and they know they've been chubbed, they don't. And then Eric walks in wearing, wearing like sort of jeans and a baseball cap and a, a jacket and all that. Oh, God, boss is going to go mad when he sees this. And Ferguson goes, ah, oh, Eric, you look sensational. Yeah, he's prepared to bend the rules for certain players at certain times when he knew it would benefit the team. And the problem is, the problem is if you've got three players like that in the team, suddenly that, that's too many rules that have to be bent to incorporate them all. And that's when it becomes a lot more difficult, particularly if those three aren't doing all, you know, that much work. You've done the rest of the team during the match are doing the work of 11. There's only eight of them. Yeah, those sort of games, the sort of games we're going to have on Tuesday, yeah, you know, we're going to concentrate on the mega stars, obviously, but are those sort of games usually decided by the spear carriers? Now, you know, De Bruyne is more than a spear carrier, and probably wasn't at his best. Funny enough, at, at Stamford Bridge, is this the sort of stage, Glenn, that he can get the credit that he deserves? Yeah, it's, it could be a good opportunity for him in many respects because there are there are so many players we picked up, and there are only. You can't see, for example, one the the front three of PSG dropping back to try and screen the passes into him, that sort of stuff very much. So he should get he should get a certain amount of time and possession of the ball because there are only so many people there in the post side who are going to be doing the marking, doing the hard yards. So that 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 opportunity, I guess you look at one Adam could be quite influential in terms of trying to stop him, and um, Herrera might have, you know, get the, get the. The, the dogs work, but it's a good opportunity, a good platform. And yeah, Grealish is added another dimension, another person to be looked at at City. So there are so many sort of uh, difficult players you to pick up if you're against them. And I mean, one of the luxuries that Grealish has obviously found playing for City is that when there are so many good players, you are no longer double marked because they can't afford to double mark you. And, yeah, so therefore De Bruyne can't be double marked because yeah, and that's a benefit, I guess, of being a great player in a team of great players. Yeah, you saw Chelsea on Saturday, Migs. They're away to Juventus on Wednesday. You know, they were pretty functional against Zenit in their first game. Do you expect them to step up a level? Yeah, I think so far 
in Tuchel's time, and it is still a quite brief time, he's responded to adversity well. The 5-2 against West Brom, the uh, FA Cup final defeat to Leicester, and then also, crucially, I think, the really bad performance on the very last day of the season against Aston Villa, which should have cost them Champions League football this year, the final notwithstanding. But they got lucky. And it was maybe, maybe that, that luck and the kind of the assurance that came from getting into the Champions League despite a defeat that propelled them for the final. But even even so, they went from one of their least convincing performances under Tuchel to one of their most convincing, given how brilliantly calculated that, that, that final against Manchester City was. So, so far, the signs are that this is a team that, that don't wear disappointments too heavily. There are probably enough mitigating factors about, about Saturday. The, the only thing it did... And it was probably a little bit over the top was just kind of subdue all the talk about how good this team is. Because even the performances, well, the results have been very convincing, of course. And they in, in certain spells of games, like the second half against Spurs, and actually, funnily, the, the, the second half against Liverpool in a different way when they gave up nothing despite being down to 10 men. They, 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 it, it, it's not like they were being at 100%. It feels like we actually still haven't seen the full potential of Chelsea and the Tuchel. I don't, I don't think they've fully clicked in attack yet. That's something we're waiting for, I'd say, for all these forward players to really kind of sync together in a manner you, you, you'd associate Tuchel's best football with and what, what they should be able to do. I think that could be ominous for people for people this season. But also Saturday's game was a bit of a check for them in the sense of City showed them kind of that, that title-winning level as well as a reminder that Chelsea... Can't be too complacent in this this campaign, and uh, but I think that'll be the case on Wednesday. Now they might get fortunate because Allegri, after Juventus, their their first league win of the season at the weekend over Sampdoria, he announced that Dybala and Morata would probably miss the game. Now, I suppose with Morata's chance conversion, <laughs> that's hard to say whether it's a good <laughs> thing or a bad thing, but yes, it's certainly I think they should win this game. Yeah, on Saturday it was the first time in eighteen years that Chelsea had failed to register a shot up on target at home. Dwelling on, on the front two there, Glenn, Timo Werner still gradually building confidence, but he probably needs service, which then poses questions about the balance of midfield and probably specifically the role of Mason Mount. And what do you think also the, the lessons that we can draw from Lukaku's nullification by City? Because you know before then he was looking like a force of nature. Well, I guess uh, it doesn't matter how good you are if you can't get the ball. I mean, they're very good. City were very good in cutting off the supply to him for the middle, cutting off the supply from the flanks. And then he was up against two very good centre-halves. I mean, obviously it wasn't one of his better games, but, I, you know, most, unless you're Messi, I guess, or one or two others, you, you do need supply if you're a goal scorer. And if you can cut the supply off to a large extent, it's going to be quite difficult. I don't think he got that many opportunities, certainly in the in the penalty area. The ball wasn't really getting in there that often because City were in such control for the last parts of the game. And obviously they did miss Mason Mount and his ability to sort of link it the midfield and attack and then find those little spaces was, I think, quite significant. One of the examples where you realise how important a player is when he's not playing. And Werner's interesting because his movement's very good still. His movement's always been very good. But, I mean, he's only got one goal this season against an understrength Aston Villa defence in the League Cup. It's extraordinary when you look at his goal record in Germany. Well, I guess he did play a slightly different role in his goal record in England. You have to assume it's primarily confidence and there will be a time when suddenly the goals start going in but you wonder how long a team like Chelsea can wait for that to happen or do you just accept he's no longer a goal scorer and he's going to be using it in a wide position you know creating space maybe creating goals just use him differently as some players do convert yeah looking at uh, Juventus Migs 
Locatelli scored his first goal in that win over Sampdoria. Do we read anything into the their early struggles in Syria? I wouldn't read that too much into them. I think, well, they're interesting from the perspective of the whole idea of modern team building. It's in the wake of the Ronaldo sale. I, I, I think there's been an interesting discussion about Ronaldo and the use of stars, but I think that's somewhat been provoked by, <laughs> I think, Manchester United fans haven't, uh, sorry, an element of Manchester United fans haven't taken too kindly to discussion about whether Ronaldo is actually a good thing for Juventus because of the potential implications for United and have sought to really seize on the early season struggles. But I, I think basically there's, there's, a, there's a few things happening there. First of all, whatever about Ronaldo's individual performance at Juventus and the debate about that, it is, it is a fact that his gravitational pull on the budget and the team prevented them imp- implementing the overhaul that they wanted to do for three years. And it's what it was. It's one reason, separate to Ronaldo himself, of why it was kind of, it was an evidence basically of bad strategy from Juventus. Now, that might have implications for Tottenham, given Paratici was one of the one of the main figures behind, behind that. But so the situation that Allegri has been left with now, and in fact, there's another interesting thing there because Allegri's probably, this is probably the time where they should have brought in a manager like Sarri rather than Allegri, because Allegri's more of a pragmatist. He's not He's not as much of a, an ideology manager in that way as now as they, they try and impose an ideology. And now they, they're finally free to. But the squad is in a, it's in a kind of a, a bit of a, it's almost between two stools. There's almost kind of the, the, the leftover of this era where they brought in so many free transfers and have so many players kind of either in their late 20s or early 30s and massive contracts. That, that's been an issue of Barca and a lot of the big clubs. They kind of weigh things down and prevent a certain level of football, Ronaldo being the ultimate example of that. Then the other side, we've got so many young players. This is what Juventus have been, really been good at throughout this period. Now, of course, it's easier to be good enough when you've got such a position of superiority at the top of, the, of the, top of your domestic league. But there is a, a lot of young talent in that team that they now can really start to maximise and kind of build in a different way. But it's one of the things that Allegri has actually been speaking about in the opening weeks of the season where he was talking about the team almost has to be weaned off their dependence on individual brilliance and have a kind of a collective built again. Because that was one of the issues, one of the problems for Sarri, one of the problems for Pirlo, even though they're separate, fair questions about Pirlo's actual ability. One of the issues Juventus has found over the past few years is they try and build a team in a certain way because this is it's an education process again, basically, there were some struggles. What do they do when they struggle? Well, they abandon that and just knock it up to Ronaldo and he scores. So it, it was, it was a, a problem solved that kind of created a bigger, a, a, a different problem. And now they're kind of readjusting to that. But because of the, the strength, that, strength that, that, that that squad, because Allegri is a hugely experienced and a coach of very high ability, now I wouldn't read too much into early season struggles. I, I, I think they'll be absolutely fine within a few months. So maybe the challenge for Chelsea is to uh, <laughs> to win this game and get ahead of it before Juventus become a problem in the group. Yeah, Ronaldo, of course, I'm, you know, I'm not a betting man, but I would put a few shillings on the fact that he'd probably score at least once against Villarreal at Old Trafford on Tuesday. Uh, sorry, Wednesday. Glenn, that is a game they cannot afford to lose, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we, people talk a lot about, you know, can't afford to lose games. And um, a lot of the time you you can actually afford to lose them, but you don't want to. But this is one. I mean, having lost to the weakest team in the group, 
a group that looked um, moderately tricky because Atalanta and Villarreal are both decent opposition. Now becomes quite a, quite a dangerous one because I mean you, you're already behind. Fortunately, Atalanta and Villarreal took sort of points off each other, I guess, but and he, he's got points, but. You can't really afford, particularly at home. No, I mean you can't afford, can't really afford to lose this game because it just adds to the pressure. Particularly having lost at the weekend, and then all the questions mount up again about Solskjaer and where the team are going. And it's not as if there's lots of alternatives out there immediately in mid-season. And it seems with United, every time they're taking you know one step forward and they look like they're beginning to go somewhere, then it starts to fall apart somewhere else, and they haven't quite got the balance right. And yeah, little. It's, it's been tiny fractions. It is an interesting illustration. I mean, they've had the last minute penalty missed by Fernandez. The last minute penalty missed the previous game by Noble. And then you have got the last minute goal, Lingard, his mistake, and then also the success. So it does show how narrow the margins are. But that's where United are at the moment. They're a team where a slight twitch here or there, yeah, can can change games. Where you look at other teams like City, you know. You get a, a, a small mistake or a small thing, but it doesn't really matter because they've usually, they've usually okay, they drew Southampton recently, they've usually got enough in hand that you're going to get through those slight things, whereas United, they do seem to need things to go for them. Yeah, a very important game against a team, obviously, they've got a bit of history, recent history with and a manager who's largely underrated, but particularly good in Europe. Yeah, and it is set up for, for some more unflattering comparisons, isn't it, Migs? Yeah, as Glenn hinted there, you know, Unai Emery is probably unfairly underrated due to, you know, memories of his spell at Arsenal. You know, I know that you you have doubts about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Three defeats in four. He should be getting more out of that squad, shouldn't he? Oh, yeah, completely. And, right, you, you, you can, one is, the, one is the Carabao Cup. Fair enough, but of course that comes to the context where he hasn't actually won a trophy yet in almost three years in Manchester United, and and also in in, in the in the modern game basically when you know this has been such a discussion of the last year where the super clubs have so much money and such a competitive advantage now we should really be past the era where these where these teams are losing such gluts of games in, in such a short space of time that has been one of the features of the of the, of the past year decade now of course it will happen to some of these clubs who are in crisis like we see with barcelona or something else going on there entirely but not in a situation like united where they were supposed to be on this massive upward curve where ronaldo was supposed to immediately propel them onto the next level and it's amazing how quickly we suddenly have what what let's be fair has as as glenn pointed there has been a very typical Solskjaer slump because it's amazing. Again, almost three years into it, we still seem to have this same cycle where Solskjaer is either two weeks away from a lot of United supporters declaring that this finally is the rebirth of the club and glory is so close to <laughs> two games away from the potential sack. Now, that I suppose if we're going to follow that through, it does mean that there's probably a spell of good results coming up, although... Their fixtures over the next month are, are, are usually difficult. But yeah, he, he, he should be getting more. But then this, this does remain one of the issues. And it also touches back to the discussion we're having about Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City, where there isn't... Basically, Manchester United, Paris Saint-Germain, and you would say to a degree Real Madrid, are on opposite sides of what is kind of a split among the top-level clubs between system and ideology teams and teams based on individuals. And Manchester United are very much, it's fit around individuals now, with Ronaldo actually emphasising that or, or, or making that more pronounced. And it will mean, because this has been such a characteristic of all United's games this season, they will be got at in games, 
but they do have the individual brilliance to bail them out. Now, I suppose, the, but the question on the individual game is which has more of an effect. And it, it's, it has been a growing issue of United. I, I don't think they've had a single full convincing performance this season. Even the game against Leeds, you know, it was, it was one all relatively late into the second half. And Leeds are a team that specifically play into United's hands in that way. But since then, and I think there's been about at least three of their games where fairly moderate opposition has repeatedly got to the back of that midfield and created three or four big chances. If, New, if Newcastle or Wolves had finishers, those two games could look very different. And it does feel like almost every Manchester United game, despite their ample talent, is almost playing a tightrope in that sense. If they go ahead, and they do have the capability to absolutely batter teams, but if it stays in the balance, they have these suddenly quite nervy occasions where they're looking to someone like Ronaldo to save them. Yeah, well, certainly the next five Premier League games, Everton, Leicester, Liverpool, Spurs, Man City, does seem like a little bit of a... You know, a tap dancer, a minefield, doesn't it? I just want to. You made the point about last minute penalties being missed, Glenn. I just want to raise the issue of players seeming, you know, they're almost desperate to apologise or they feel obliged to, to, to apologise. You know, Bruno Fernandes said sorry on social media. This is a modern phenomenon. Is it healthy? Well, I think we'll obviously have to end the podcast with apologising for calling Tuesday, Wednesday and coughing occasionally <laughs> and so on to our listeners. Um, because clearly you have to get it out there these days. Yeah, it's, it's just ludicrous. I mean, he's not missed a penalty on purpose. It's quite an unusual penalty for him compared to how he normally takes them. But I must admit, I really think that is an odd one. Why he or his people around him felt compelled to issue an apology for missing a last minute penalty as if... Yeah, it's like you bump into someone in the street or something, or you're a bit careless. I mean, he's not missed it deliberately. He's got a fantastic record from penalties. He's been an incredible player for Manchester United ever since he joined. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason why he should be having a feeling that he has to apologise for missing a penalty in the last minute. Yeah, no doubt he would have received the same amount of abuse on social media from one or two people in their back bedrooms, as Phil Jones described them last week, drinking their flat Coke. But it just seems ridiculous that, you know, you feel compelled to do this. Move on, try to score the next one. You know, obviously the next one's going to be taken by Ronaldo, so that won't be an issue. But yeah, I, I don't quite know where we're going with this. Next thing, people are going to be suing him for missing the penalty. It's very much a social. It's a, it's a social media age thing, isn't it? Though, I, I, I think it is connected to, to basically the more direct access that supporters and social media users have to players, particularly in the way players can basically just go online and see the amount of abuse they get. Whether that was a a factor with Bruno Fernandes, we, we we don't know. But it's hard not to think it was. Not necessarily from United fans, but more so the amount of kind of goading abuse you get off of kind of fans of other clubs. And when you see that, I suppose it becomes more of a kind of an inclination then to kind of almost get your point across rather than just to ignore it and get on with it. Which, of course, really... I mean, if, if you're if you're, if you're apologising for these one-off games... But then I suppose, it, it, I mean... That's the nature of modern football now, and especially when you play for a club, Manchester United, with so many competitive advantages in that regard, where any slip is going to build up much more than it would have been even 10, 20 years ago when it was just another league game. And also what what is ridiculous is that the modern age of professionals are, are more professional in its very real sense than any group have ever been. I mean, 
Yeah, we, yeah, we can, Mike, Mike and I in particular remember back in the age when players would routinely be drinking heavily during the week, you know, not training properly and so on. And then you could argue they, they should apologise for their behaviours on Saturday if they spent the week not really preparing for it. The current generation, the current generation, yeah, they leave no stone unturned in making sure they're ready to play. In the vast, overwhelming majority of cases, yeah, very, very few players go out on the pitch not having done everything they can that week to be the best they can be. And yeah, therefore, they've got less reason to apologise probably than any generation of footballers ever. It's not like Bruno Fernandes and the rest of the Manchester United players have um, the Tuesday club of the 90s where they're all going to Mulligans <laughs> all day. No. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the younger player, their career is strategically planned. And it, I found it really interesting this morning to, to read the Borussia Dortmund chief exec talking about Jaden Sancho and he, he wanted to to move to Manchester United, one as an obviously you know a form of career progression, but two because, and I quote, I think it was a lack of acceptance in the English national team of his achievements in the Bundesliga. So that's what we're dealing with. You know, Sancho has been completely overlooked this season so far, hasn't he, Mix? Now, that's a very interesting one. So I was talking to someone last week who knows Sancho quite well. Not, 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 not someone that has any kind of you know uh, influence in his decision making or like is that is in his circle, but who, but who, who does know them quite well, and knows the player quite well, and they were raising the concern that basically, how to put this, whether Solskjaer's less technical approach is actually going to be beneficial for his career in the manner they thought. Because when it, I mean, even though it was Julian, it was Favre at Dortmund who obviously left with you know his reputation not exactly enhanced. Dortmund still played you know a highly structured game. Basically, when Sancho was on the ball, approaching goal, he he basically had a map laid out for him. There was all sorts of because of the way those German clubs played. There's all sorts of little triggers when to make the pass, when to make the run. And it's highly structured, and, and particularly for a, a young player with so much talent and maybe needs guidance in, in, in multiple sentences, it obviously helps to hone your talent. Whereas at Manchester United, it's much more freeform. And, and the, the, the phrase that was put to me is basically, United's football isn't technical or planned enough to enhance Sancho. And so it means, in, in, in a few ways now, it feels like he's kind of been just left to do his own thing out there. And that doesn't necessarily suit him, especially not when he's not really in his strongest position because he's on the other wing. And I, say, I think... The development of that is going to be, uh, it'll be both instructive and fascinating. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a really interesting one that he, he felt he had to move because he wasn't getting due appreciation for his his talent. I mean that 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 that's something I suppose that goes back decades as well, where uh, <laughs> the fixation on the on the English league and what happens in England will dominate all. You've got the you know, Dortmund have got Sporting Lisbon on Tuesday, which is. You know, probably a meeting of two football factories. The other Portuguese interest, Porto, uh, they've got Liverpool at home on Tuesday. Do you expect Jurgen Klopp to rotate given the importance of the City game, Glenn? I would have thought so because, the um, again, Liverpool have bought themselves a bit of breathing space with that defeat of Milan. Gives them a little bit of space. In what is ostensibly quite a tricky group, clearly, you'd have thought that this is one where if they can get in there, pick up a point, yeah, we well, even better win, but pick up a point and um, keep one or two players fresh for the weekend. They probably look to. I mean, it's a better position now, particularly defensively. They, you know, suddenly they've got lots of options rather than having nowhere near enough options, and they're not too badly placed in terms of fitness. So they, they've got quite a decent bit of depth in the squad at the moment, Liverpool. So you would have thought they'd be looking looking 
picking the team with a view to the weekend, definitely. Yeah, Mo Salah, 100 goals now in 151 Premier League games, Migs. Do you think that milestone is a sort of a looks forward to another, maybe a new contract announcement soon? It does feel that way. But also the other side of that is that Salah for so long had designs on going to one of Spain's big two. Now, first of all, Spain's big two don't don't have the money and because they no longer have the money, it means they need to start being a bit more strategic about how they spend the money, which is why the forwards are looking to are much younger than Salah. So from one perspective, his options have actually been closed off, which is remarkable, of course, as his football influence has stayed so consistent. And it's... To a certain degree, it almost feels a little bit overlooked with Salah. I mean, overlooked is the wrong word, but just the, 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 nature, the nature of his consistency and how many important goals he has, it really is phenomenal. I mean, okay, it's obviously not to Messi-Ronaldo levels, but we're probably talking about the next tier down in that regard, especially given that Liverpool have been one of the best clubs in Europe for the past half decade. Yeah, lest we forget, Liverpool played Spurs in the Champions League final in 2019. Spurs are at home to Slovenian side NS Mura, who apparently only founded in 2012. I know that because I looked it up. In the Europa Conference, given everything that went on in the North London Derby Glen, which was pretty much catastrophic for them, this is really an unnecessary distraction, isn't it? It's incredible sliding door sort of thing, isn't it? I mean, we all love doing this sort of thing, but I mean, if Spurs had won that Champions League final, you know, how might things be different? Obviously, Pochettino would still be there. You know, Kane would be happy. They'd have won big trophies. They'd have maybe brought in other players. The, the brand new, fantastic stadium would be, uh, would have been another draw. Yeah, And Spurs would be, we would imagine that Spurs would be right up there, you know, challenging City and Liverpool for the title, being a force in Europe, and how so much can turn on one game and, and poor decisions made in the wake of that one game, I guess. And now they are scrabbling around in, in the, the conference against teams that very few people in England have ever heard of. And in crisis at home, that those early results obviously were unreflective of the performances. You could argue maybe 3-0, 3-0, 1, uh, have they been quite that bad for the last three games? But actually in patches, yes, they have. And, you know, Kane and Son are both playing. So it's not as if, you know, the two guys, who the key players last season are not there. They look a mess. It's probably a distraction in a way. But then again, winning is always helpful. And if you can get a win, yeah, you know, I, I can see him putting out a relatively strong side because they need to win. They need to break the cycle of defeats. You need to get a win, so you need to make sure. Yeah, a bit like um, Arteta last week against Wimbledon put out a pretty strong side for the, for the league. I mean, I know only party played all the games, but it, it wasn't a side full of kids and experimental side that Wenger used to play in the league a couple of years ago. It was a side that was going to definitely go out and then win the game. And as he said, he wanted to keep the momentum going. You know, they want to ask for a good run of wins, and you want to keep that going. Spurs have to shift their momentum now. They they need to get a win. So although it's a distraction and. Clearly, the Premier League is a much bigger fish to fry for them. They do need to win the game, so he has to make sure he puts out a team that are capable of winning and winning with a little bit of style. Yeah. What are the implications in all this, Migs, for, for Nuno? Fifth choice as manager? Yeah, if, he, if even fifth. I, I, I think it's even for, back, further back down than that. But sorry, go on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when they appointed him, he was already on a, on a downward spiral at Wolves. Players didn't really get on with him. He's certainly not one of the great communicators, is he? And the football, which is all important, was pretty dull. 
What do they expect? Well, this, I mean, in fact, it's not so much what they expect, I think, but the question here, and this applies, as you've touched on, so many Spurs decisions in the wake of May 2019. What were they thinking? I mean, I mean, I mean there's two reasons, basically, the appointment of Nuno was remarkable. First of all, there's Daniel Levy's own statements where he talked about free-flowing, attacking, entertaining football. Now, whatever you think of Nuno as a manager, and he does have qualities or certainly used to in terms of uh, organising a, a defence, not that we saw that on Sunday, but you would never associate him with <laughs> free-flowing, attacking, entertaining football. So from that very, very basic principle, there's already a mismatch there. And from what I'm told, of course, Levy made that statement in the middle of their manager search. From From what I'm told... By that point, they'd already passed on Nuno because they knew, basically, or they, they had reservations about aspects of his, of his game and his, you know, I suppose the level of achievement in his career so far. Yet, despite both of those facts, they still aren't going for him. And, it, I mean, all right, okay, Spurs were in a situation where it was getting a bit, the manager hunt was getting a bit desperate and pathetic. I mean, without putting too fine a point, but it, it was. So they had to resort to some profile. But that doesn't feel like a cool decision in that regard and the sort that, that Levy is famed for. And watching yesterday's game, which was obviously catastrophic for Tottenham and for Nuno, it was so bad. But even the way Nuno was speaking afterwards, it got me thinking, if he gets the sort of game plan he wants here, what's the best case scenario? It's not exactly good football. It's not a manager with stellar record of success. <laughs> the best case scenario for Spurs is almost tedium matched with mediocrity. And w- w- would, this, w- would the team or the club be basically better served with a manager of lesser profile but more progressive ideas? Because at least you're getting entertaining football, even if, of course, there are questions about kind of jumping up to the level. Because there has been a question of Nuno as well. It's suddenly, you know, Wolves, even with the Mendes influence, is one thing. But Spurs, with their recent Champions League history and their history as a club, it, it, it is something else altogether. But then, of course, you're getting into bigger questions of how much money they were actually willing to spend on a manager, what sort of promises they made to managers in terms of what they could do. And I, and we, we were getting into the wider debate about what Spurs have actually done in the wake of May 2019. Because, of course, with Antonio Conte, uh, from what everyone says, he basically walked away because um, he, didn't, he didn't think Spurs could challenge. He 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 was he wasn't up for it, and that's a, it. Really is, I mean, this is basically it has been a lesson. Now, of course, the, the, we we can't overlook the COVID crisis has been hugely influential in in all this and and really been detrimental for a club who just built a massive stadium. But given what getting to a Champions League final does for a club, particularly one that's never been in one before, it's amazing how Spurs have squandered that those advantages. I remember in the build up to that final, I did, I did a piece. A huge piece and kind of why, you know, Pochettino's realisation of what this meant for him and the club to get that far, all the various commercial benefits, all the various kind of benefits in terms of historical profile to just be in a fixture like that. And I think that that still stands true. But the, the, the what's actually happened is that the, the, the Levy Spurs haven't, maxim, haven't maximised or, or really kind of benefited from any real way. In fact, it just prompted a series of bad decisions to, at the club. I think it really gives it away in some respects. I mean, for a guy like Levy, who's been so organised in building the stadium in terms of structure off the pitch at the club, 
is when you look at the list of managers that they're sort of like approached, I mean, you know, Fonseca, Lopugetu, Gattuso, Nagelsmann, the guy Ajax, it's like, it's a real scattergun approach, a supermarket sweep of a coach. There was not a sense, of, okay, what this is the sort of coach we want, okay, and who are those sort of coaches? And I would say, Spurs are not alone in this. It's amazing how many clubs, I mean, Everton in recent years have been a classic example. I mean, what you could say about Benitez, they've got the nearest thing out there to Ancelotti. They did actually identify a type and say, right, okay, we're going to keep going for that type. Um, but it's amazing how often that these, you know, these guys run these clubs, who, you know, many times they run big businesses. They seem to have no idea of the sort of type of manager they want compared to, say, Brentford, who do know what type. And the, the guy you, you're just, you were describing earlier, what they probably should have gone for, is Graham Potter. Um, yeah, lower profile, but plays good football and knows what he's doing. Um, and yeah, it's like this seduction of glossy names and then, okay, oh, well, he's managed someone big, maybe him or whatever him. And obviously lots of agents saying, our man's the man, or your, yeah, this man's the man and so on. But there's no sense of an overwhelming um, plan, basically. And yet there was with the stadium. Yeah, but it's all about the bling, isn't it? You've got Daniel Levy talking about Spurs being worth three and a half billion pounds which is a figure that I'm assuming he's plucked out the uh, you know the evening air somewhere doesn't it boil down Migs to having a, a manager having faith in a manager and letting him get on and don't interfere and I'm thinking here of David Moyes and West Ham who do look to be capable of making the most of the Europa League they're at home to uh, Rapid Vienna on Thursday yeah and it, it does feel like Moyes has a uh, realise the opportunity here. I think it's quite a nice story in that regard as well, given that let's, I, I was one of many people that thought Moyes was basically done. And what we've instead seen is, I was so impressed with against Manchester United last week, which is the only time I've seen them in the flesh this season. But like I, I did, did, this has been said by other people before, but I think it's, it really stands true. They West Ham really look like the best of his Everton. Very hard to break down and know exactly when to hurt you. Just on the Spurs thing, the, the, the one thing I would say as well is there's still of a obviously there's still of a sufficient size of the club that if they appoint the right manager, the kind of the complexion can change again. But then that that does point to a bigger question, which and I, I think Glenn touched on there. They don't for, for all Levy's talk of kind of free flowing entertaining football and these specific principles, it doesn't feel like they actually know what sort of manager they want, and that's how they can inexplicably go from a manager with the ideology of Pochettino to a manager with the ideology of Mourinho or then Nuno because they're they're two very very different things and like it's something from talking to people who are around Spurs it's it's one of the questions that's been that's raised about uh, that Levy that basically his record of appointing managers is actually distinctly mediocre he got very very fortunate once which was Pochettino who was a transformative figure for the club and beyond that there's probably been more misses than hits which raises a bigger question. Now, so the flip side of that is West Ham were a club who went through the similar process, I suppose, of looking to a different profile of manager that ended up being, it didn't, it didn't fit the club. Whereas Moyes right now seems to, it, 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 it just looks right. It, it's, uh, you know, he buys into it. The team buys into him. And um, the the only issue you have, the only question is that, European football could sap the energy of a kind of a relatively thin squad over the course of a season. But if you manage it right, then there's real potential there. 
Yeah. I just want to end on a, on a personal note. I'm just talking about another manager who I, I really respect, Arsene Wenger. And, you know, as I said, I've got a lot of time for him. I think the problem is he's got too much time on his hands. He should still be consumed by the daily challenges of club football. Instead, through his work for FIFA and some would say an apologist for this idea of, of having a World Cup every two years, he's become the mouthpiece for men who pretty much know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Football politicians are the same the world over. They all know the fixture list's overloaded. They all want someone else to do something about it. I'll leave you with this thought. I think we need less football, not more. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Glenn and Miguel for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.